This is episode 18 of Talking With, Brian Lamb's conversation with historian Richard Norton Smith. It starts after this. Tell us you're an introvert instead of an extrovert. How much of your time do you spend alone? Most. There's a wonderful line from Thoreau. I might put it on my tombstone. It said, I never found a companion so companionable as solitude. Now, I hesitate. I don't want that to sound egotistical. It isn't that I think my company is better than anyone else's. Far from it. Um, Hoover said that um, in the end, accomplishment is all that counts. And my experience is, at least the accomplishment that I'm capable of, which is basically putting words to paper, um, is, is, is something accomplished in solitude. Told us what you <clears throat> watch on television. What are your other outside interests? I have uh, so many. As you know, I'm a hurricane freak. I've tracked every storm since I was six. In 1985, I got to fly into uh, Hurricane Kate on an Air Force reconnaissance plane, which was a memorable experience. Um, that gives me something from June to November. Life takes on an extra meaning. Um, and I say that without in any way sanctioning uh, the, the horror of these storms. Um, so anyway, hurricanes, um, Oscar night, you know, for years I had an Oscar night party. Um, although the, the, those are rare. Hollywood doesn't make that kind of movies anymore. So, you know, great big costume dramas with English kings. Um, I used to drag my mother uh, to me. Remember, A Man for All Seasons. That was my birthday present for my 13th birthday. She said, are we going to see another old English movie? And I said, you, you'll like it. You'll like it. And, and, you know, she suffered through it. It didn't, you know, do her any harm. Um, she liked Gandhi, you know, and Nicholas and Alexandra. But when's the last time, you know, you tell me? Hollywood doesn't make those movies anymore. So, so I am a great fan of Turner Classic Movies. I probably spend more time in front of TCM than any any other uh, outlet on the tube. Broadway, Broadway, yes. <clears throat> I'm um, I'm afraid I'm that cliche. The you know. Um, uh, what impact does Broadway, Broadway have? <clears throat> even it though has, it's mostly in New York, and there a lot of these shows travel now. Yeah. But what impact does that have on our culture? It has vastly less than it used to. Um. In the 40s and the 50s, in the glory days of Rodgers and Hammerstein, it was the hit parade. You know, the latest hit songs were on Broadway. Um, the Tonight Show, the original incarnation of the Tonight Show, uh, the America After Dark, grew out of Broadway After Dark. I mean, television, of course, was so New York centric. And the days of Winchell. And Dorothy Kilgallen and Ed Sullivan before he was on who TV. Who are those people? Uh, exactly. Who are those people? <laughs> they were one day, once everyone knew who they were. Everyone knew who they were. And, and that's how important Broadway was. Uh, and Broadway journalism. Well, you know, Liz Smith died not long ago, at 94. 
Um, you know, I don't know if there's any, and she wasn't really a Broadway. I mean, but you what know, did Dorothy Kilgallen do. Dorothy Kilgallen was again. Well, well, you have to remember, there was a time when New York, in our memory, had eight or nine daily newspapers, each with a distinct profile and a distinct constituency, and each covering Broadway, um, which, you know. Again, in the 30s and the 40s, we talk about the golden age of Hollywood. Much of the golden age of Hollywood was made possible because Broadway talent migrated to the West Coast. I mean, the Gershwins uh, and uh, and Cole Porter and, you know, on and on. So um, part of me, I, I'm, I must admit, lives in the past musically. I think music died. Well, and, and of course... Thank God, the the bridge from <laughs> Cole Porter, who left us in 1964, to the present is Stephen Sondheim. Um, I am among the more passionate, uh, as you know, because I, I don't think we share a, a similar passion, but um, I, I'm among the more uh, uncritical um, observers of Sondheim's work. Um, you know, I mean, I can sing the lyrics to every... I mean, it's it's not something to boast about. It's not particularly something I, I necessarily want, um, you know, in my obit. But um, you asked uh, what my passions were, um, and uh, Sondheim ranks near the top. Because he's intelligent and honest and... Um, much more lyrical than he's given him credit for, and witty. It's a you know um, a gone long gone passion. When I was a kid, I would um, I prevailed on my long suffering parents to let me stay up late and watch Jack Parr. And I thought Jack Parr was the acme of sophistication because. Unlike more recent talk shows, which aren't talk shows, they're basically pagoa for, you know, the latest movie or, you know, crappy video. You know, I mean, when's the last time you heard a conversation? What, what, what Parr did was, and, and Parr said, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this show. I have no particular talent. He didn't sing. He didn't dance. What he did was converse. And he brought out, and he had this wonderful repertoire company of, of people, you know, um, who, who became old friends. Oscar Levant. I mean, no one knows who Oscar Levant was, but look at the old, you know, the old kinescopes uh, of Oscar Levant. Or, 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 you know, there were, I mean, Jonathan Winters. Uh, uh, you know, hilarious people. Before there was Robin Williams, there was Jonathan Winters. And they had no other outlet. Jack Parr discovered Bill Cosby. Um, I mean, a black comic, you know, in the late 1950s, Godfrey Cambridge, who was hilarious, but it was very much out of the sort of conventional mold. Uh, and the other thing that Parr did was, remember, Parr interviewed Fidel Castro. Parr took his shoulder on the road. He, Parr had a real interest in public affairs. And that spilled over. So when the, Richard Nixon would go on the show and play the piano. Well, you know, you saw a side of Richard Nixon 
that you wouldn't see anywhere else. Bobby Kennedy's first public appearance uh, on TV after the death of his brother was on The Power Show. In those days, The Power Show was, you know, the place to be. And so in some ways, it was it was inseparable from this interest we talked about in kind of the, the larger world and events going on and the news. But but I watched Parr. And then later on, you know, he left. He left in 1962. And television's never been the same. And he came back briefly in 1973. And... <laughs> I wrote to him, and we struck up a... Well, his daughter went to Harvard, and that was what we had in common. So, we, you know, I would write back. He had written cards and so on and so on. And, um, you know, when you're young, you do crazy things. So uh, when it was announced, I saw every, every show that year. I never missed, you know, five nights a week. And... Um, and he went a bit known in October. The ratings were not great, you know. And you know what? It's the, it's it's very difficult for people in television to come back. I mean, it's very difficult. People they move on. People have very short memories, and you can be a sensation, you know. And a few years later, you know, who's that? Anyway, it's just, and you don't take it personally. It's just. That's the way it is. Okay. And Parr experienced that. Because um, he hadn't changed. And I was glad he hadn't changed. But everyone else, everything else had changed. So anyway. So he announced in October that he's leaving. So I said, i got to be there. i got to be there. So <laughs> I got tickets for the last show. Now, you remember, I'm a college kid. I have no money at all. Getting to New York is a big deal. So I mean, I got to New York, got to the studio. But in the meantime, it was very odd. I wrote to him the latest of these exchanges. And, you know, I was a collector even then. I collected autographs. I collected so I thought, you know what? I've got to have a chair from, from Jack Parr's set. You know? What a wonderful memento, you know, it will be of, of this man who means so much to me. And, of course, I didn't stop to think how that would look, you know? So I wrote him this very earnest, you know, the latest in a succession of fan letters. And he mentioned me on the show. The next time he was on, he said, oh, yeah, I heard this Stephen Howard, blah, 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 blah. We have writing and everything else. And he was talking about the news, the reaction to the news that he was going off the air. And he used me as the example. And he said, yeah, and he writes me a letter, said, can I have your furniture? And it was my, you know, my 15, not even 15 seconds of fame. But anyway, I went for the last show, and it was a very emotional emotional experience and I'm afraid that's the last time we had any contact but because Per Per was an unusual figure I mean he he uh, he was very ambivalent about fame and all the everything that television notoriety brought with it I mean he he was someone who I think was very happy you know he bought a radio station in Maine and he went off and traveled he had a great interest in Africa he traveled the world, but he didn't miss television, you know, in, in the least. He was someone who was utterly capable of sustaining himself for the rest of his life through a, a range of, of interests. 
And that's not a bad way to live. Did you get your piece of furniture? I didn't. I just got the story. Um, and the uh, <laughs> and and a series of uh, of cards are written in in Jack Parr's hand. Who are your favorite entertainers that you have come to like in your lifetime? Oh gosh. Well, first of all, they're all dead. <laughs> That's one thing that tells you something about my uh, tenuous attachment to contemporary culture. Um, one thing I totally admit, I, I literally lived through rock and roll and rock, utterly oblivious to its existence. I've never been to a concert. I've never willingly listened to an album. I'm just, uh, I am hermetically sealed from that part of the entertainment world. Why? That's a good question. I, something instinctively didn't like it. Um, I'm not, I mean, not to be unrelievably negative, it, it, it's I, because something instinctively liked the alternative better. I am. Um, I I love the great American songbook, as Michael Feinstein would say. Um, Cole Porter is a is a hero. Um, the Gershwins. One of the <laughs> a, a unique birthday present that I was given a couple years ago. We were on one of our trips, uh, tours of essentially presidential sites in the Northeast. And it was Sunday morning. We were coming out of New York, and we stopped at Grant's Tomb uh, early, and then we were heading up, and we were stop at um, Sunnyside, uh, Washington Irving's crazy little home, right on the Hudson River. Well, it turned out just a few miles away, at a place called Hastings on Hudson, there was a cemetery. We had to visit cemeteries where George Gershwin was buried. So anyway, we, we I thought, oh boy, we go go see George Gershwin, and um, so anyway, unknown to me, my cohort in crime, uh, Eric Nelson, who does all the logistics, um, knowing that we were going to be there on my birthday, contacted the management of the cemetery. Anyway, so the bus arrives, and getting into the cemetery was not easy, but you know we did, and the mausoleum is within walking distance. Well. Anyway, the surprise was on me. Uh, the door opens in the manager's building, and out comes this very nice, maybe 40-ish woman who is the manager of the cemetery, oversees the place, and she had keys in her hand. Well, she precedes us to the Gershwin Mausoleum, which she unlocks and opens and and I said it was as close to genius as I will ever get. Uh, six inches away from 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 George Gershwin. Ira was over my shoulder, and anyway, uh, I could never imagine. <laughs> I know there are people who do. I could never imagine summoning that degree of devotion to um, David Bowie, or uh, I mean, fill in the blank. But why? Just taste. Well, what about George Gershwin and his brother that you liked? The music is incredibly evocative. It's evocative of a period. I think it's evocative of a place. 
um, New right. York, New York in the twenties and the thirties. Just it's funny. As uh, I was one of those nerdy kids who watched Leonard Bernstein's Young People's Concerts, and we've just observed the Bernstein Centenary. And can you imagine television doing anything like that today? I mean, anyone on television doing anything like that. Um, but uh, Bernstein was a remarkable teacher. He was a, na a natural teacher. He could convey his enthusiasm. And I think, so I, in the field of music appreciation, you know, from a very early age, I, I, was, I was very fortunate to that kind of exposure. And I just remember it was Aaron Copeland was a favorite, is still a favorite. Um, I remember one of the, I'd never heard a piece of music that had more impact than the Lincoln portrait as narrated by Adlai Stevenson. Uh, again, a combination of heroes, you know, and it still, it still moves me uh, to tears. Um, and none of this was in a vacuum. Broadway, the golden age of Broadway. 30s, 40s, 50s, somewhat even into the 60s, um, Sondheim. I mean, that that's that's my mayor. That's, you know, um, who's to, to analyze, I suppose? It's just a world that I wanted to inhabit. Um, so let me contrast what you've said with the just recent death of Neil Simon. Where do you put him? Well, well, Neil Simon will certainly. It's interesting. I, I'm all. I'm fascinated by what happens to people after the peak of their careers. I mean, Neil Simon lived long. Neil Simon was the most successful playwright of his time. He never, with some exceptions, he never received the kind of critical uh, embrace that popular audiences. And indeed, to some degree, he suffered because of his popular appeal. Um, you know, I, I don't think, I'm trying to think whether I've seen a, a Neil Simon play, but I, I don't mean, I got it sounds, that sounds snobbish, um, and I don't mean to, um, but what, what's interesting about Neil Simon to me is, in his later years, he, you know, he lived, I mean, I think his last successful play was in the early 90s, which something, sort of 25 years, in which you are this institution. You, you know, you have theaters named after you. You are the most successful living playwright. Um, that should count for something. And yet, at some level, you know he was haunted by the fact that, well, Tennessee Williams in a, in a totally different, in a dramatic field. I mean, Williams spent the last 25 years of his life trying to recapture um, his muse and his, his, his earlier success. You know, in his case, I mean, he was very frank about it, that booze and drugs uh, basically left him stupefied for much of that time. And yet he was moved to write every day. Um, to me, that's the more interesting. How do people deal with the loss of celebrity, um, automatic success? I mean, they have money, which is a necessity, I suppose. 
but but it's clearly not enough. Richard Norton Smith is an American historian and author. You can listen to more interviews with him by searching his name in the video library at cspan.org.